there are some moments where I'm just truly struck with awe. I'm just amazed at who our God is and what our God has done. We ought not take this day for granted. We should not take this lightly. We live in the Middle Eastern context, and yet week after week, we gather as a people of God, and we do so freely, and we sing loudly about the glories of our God in heaven. We read his word publicly. We delight in his indescribable wisdom and beauty and in his goodness, and, and we do it together in a public place. We, we listen to messages week in and week out that describe the kingship of Jesus and how our souls are satisfied alone in knowing and enjoying Jesus and how Jesus alone is mighty to save and our triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. He is the one and only God. And we, we delight and we proclaim these truths every week in this particular context. And it is no small thing. It is the act of God. It is his pleasure and it is by his power that we're able to have a church that meets in Abu Dhabi. It truly is. This is, this is a miracle. And we were not even looking for this particular venue. We were meeting in the restaurants and being very cramped. And we had no idea that behind that wall that looked like the castle, we had no idea what was being built behind that wall. I had not met the CEO of, of the Emirates Park Zoo yet. I had no clue. We didn't know where we were going to go. We were just trusting God. One thing that we did, says Elder Body, was that we did not want to have two services because having a second service, essentially, you have a second church. And we wanted to have one faith family. So we were just trusting God, having no idea what he was going to do. And then the CEO calls me and says, would you like a new meeting hall? And I say, yeah, of course, we're interested. And she says, you need a proper hall, not a shisha hall. Her words, not mine. And, and so here we are this morning, something that we could not manufacture. We did not do this. We could not have done this on our own. And yet our God has blessed us and given us a vibrant church. Now you realize that six years ago, about 20 people, and only about five families are left from that, had a vision to plant a church in the off-island region of Abu Dhabi, where Christ would be exalted, where Christ would be proclaimed, where people would be gripped by the gospel, and people would come to faith and be regenerated by the Spirit, and then further sanctified through the Spirit as we continue to hear the gospel week in, week out, on the front morning gatherings, and even in our home groups, and our discipleship groups. And these 20 or so people had this vision and the fact that we now have a growing, vibrant church is God's work. It is his doing. It is not by our might or our intelligence. It is his work. And so now we have a church where people 
are growing in grace. We have a church where people are experiencing Christ-centered community. We have a church where people are experiencing the joy of serving the church and serving the world. We have people in our church that are witnessing to their friends and coworkers. We're seeing people that are truly hungry for God's word. We're seeing people that are experiencing the joy of clinging to Jesus in the middle of difficult circumstances or in the middle of uncertainty. This is God's work. And now this church that's meeting in a zoo is on the verge of multiplying. We're about to plant a new church. This is, this is God's hand of blessing upon us, giving us the vision and, and, and the courage. Because I've already met several of you that feel God possibly leading you to go with Pastor Steve and begin a new church in Musafa. We're going to go claim that area for Jesus because it's an area that's dark. Where there's no gospel witness in Musafa. And there needs to be a gospel proclaiming church there. But when I meet several of you that are saying, we feel like God's calling us to go, I think, oh no, don't go. I don't want you to go. And then my human emotions come up and I, I'm going to miss you. But then I rebuke that and say, no, this is, this is what we're doing. We're multiplying. We're planting a new church. This is the mission God's given to us. We're about glorifying God by making and developing disciples. And it's no small thing. It is the work of God. And I can tell you very honestly that it is truly an honor to just be a part of this church. To just be a part of it. To be part of this faith family. I love my family right here in this room. And I can tell you this complete transparency. I can't even imagine my life without so blessed and so rich. And for me, this is home. In a few weeks, we're going to go visit the U.S. And quite honestly, that's not even home. Home for me is here with each of you. And being in this new hall today, to me, is it's a reminder that these are truly exciting days for our church. This is, I mean, people were here before 10 that's remarkable. It was 9.45 and people were here. I was like, whoa, this must be an exciting day. People were here before 10.15. It's remarkable. And as we see God pouring out his blessings upon this church, this last couple of weeks, I've just stopped and, and prayed and, and thought and just really contemplated how should we as a church respond to these overwhelming blessings that God is pouring out on us because his hand is upon us. Sitting in this hall is just one small way that we can see the fact that God has his hand upon this church and he's providing for us. And so how should we respond as a church to what God is doing in and through this faith family? And as, I, as I've thought and prayed about this, I believe God's given me a message out of Isaiah 43. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to Isaiah 43. Now, as far as some context for you, the prophet Isaiah lived 
in the middle of the 8th century B.C., so nearly 800 years before Jesus was born. And in the 8th century B.C., it was a very dark time for Israel. They were very far from God. They were pursuing idolatry, so they loved idols more than God. They refused to repent. And after many, many opportunities and hundreds of years of God being patient, God finally sent the nation of Assyria to judge Israel. And so the northern kingdom of Israel was completely swept away, destroyed by the nation of Assyria. God will not be mocked. Our God is holy. His people had countless opportunities to repent and turn back to him, but they did not want God. They preferred their sin. And so the northern kingdom was completely destroyed. The southern kingdom of Judah did survive the Assyrians, barely. Most of their land was destroyed, but Jerusalem did stand, did survive, and so did not fall to the Assyrian army. But it was left like a caged bird where all around was destroyed by Assyria. And so even though Jerusalem did survive the Assyrian onslaught, through the prophet Isaiah, God promised that a new nation would come into power. The nation of Babylon would then destroy Assyria, would become the world superpower, and that Babylon would indeed destroy Jerusalem and take the kingdom of Judah into exile to modern-day Iraq. And in 586 B.C., indeed, that did happen. And so Isaiah was promising judgment is coming. The people of God desperately needed a savior. Yes, Babylon was coming, and they would be taken into slavery, exiled into Babylon, but they had a much deeper much more serious problem than the, the coming exile to Babylon. The problem is that in their hearts, they did not desire God. They had spiritual slavery to their sin, which was more profound and more deadly and more serious than the Babylonian exile. What they needed was new hearts. They needed their hearts to be transformed by the Spirit of God so they could be turned back to their first love, to love God. Earlier in the worship gathering, we read from Isaiah 42. Previous chapter we'll be looking at today, chapter 43. In Isaiah 42, there's this promise. God is promising that one day he's going to send his servant, and that this servant is going to save God's people. And he's going to make them a light to the nations. And he's going to set them free from their slavery. Why? Why did God make these promises to his rebellious people? 42 verse 8 says, why? Because I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other. Why was he going to pour out his grace on his people? For the sake of his name. So that he can be shown to be magnificent and majestic and glorious. And show that he does not share his glory. And so God blesses his people for the sake of his name. God is blessing his people so that his glory can be revealed. 
So God has always been in the process and in the business of saving and then of transforming people for the sake of his glory. This is so much bigger than you or me. This is so much bigger. This is about our king who is displaying his glory by saving and then sanctifying a people that will belong to him. And so our lives have eternal value. And this church, collectively, we have eternal value because of our relation to God. That is why your life has eternal value. Because, because you have been made to reflect the beauty of an eternal and holy and glorious God. You bear God's image. And yet our image of God has been marred and corrupted by sin. And so the perfect image of God, Jesus has come to then come to restore our image so that we can then reflect God appropriately. And he does it through his grace, as we see here in Isaiah 43. So on this special morning, ECC Off-Island, what do we most need to remember? Let me give you the main idea from this text, and then we'll read it and get into it. Here's what we need to know today. God pours out his grace so that his people will be living testimonies of his glory. God is pouring out his grace upon you and upon this church so that we will be living testimonies of his indescribable glory. That's what Isaiah 43 is all about, and we'll see that here this morning. So he richly blesses you individually and us as a church so that we can be witnesses of who he is, living proof that there is a God in heaven. Let's read Isaiah 43, the first five verses. But now, thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by my name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, people in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west. I will gather you. So we just saw that the primary truth here is that God's pouring out his grace so that his people will be living testimonies of his glory. Let's take that primary truth in those two parts and look at these. And so the first one here, the first truth is that God pours out his grace. God is actively pouring out his grace on his people. That's the first thing we're seeing here. Verses 1 through 5 are really stunning. And if you know the context, it's even more so. Because God has been so kind to his rebellious people. The Israelites deserve God's judgment. At the end of chapter 42, verse 24, we do that one verse. Again, 42, 24, for the context here. He says, who gave up Jacob to the looter and Israel to the plunderers? Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned, in whose ways they would not walk, in whose law they would not obey? 
He says, judgment has come. Why? Because they won't obey, and they keep sinning, and they won't walk in God's ways, and they won't turn to God. So this moral bankruptcy that Israel was experiencing is the reason why judgment was coming. And yet you turn to chapter 43, and there's all of this grace that God is pouring upon his people. He's pouring mercy to people that are self-centered, that are hypocritical and idolatrous, and that are evil, that are far from God. And in this context, who they were, and God is saying, I love you, and I'm pouring out my grace on you. And so how is this grace described in this text? Two primary ways. The first one is through creation. So God's grace here is described in terms of creation. In verse 1, he says, He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel. And so verse 1 is crying out that God has ownership over you and me, over his people. He created us. He owns us. And so we don't belong to ourselves. We belong to God. He made us for himself. Now, this has huge implications for how we live. If we just stop and think that God owns us, that you belong to him, this should change everything in how we live. God didn't have to make you. He chose to. He wanted to. He made you for his glory, for his pleasure, so you can enjoy him. Creation is an act of God's Grace. That's what we're seeing here. Made for his pleasure to be satisfied in him. And so therefore, here's the implication. When we live for our own self-centered, selfish pleasure, when we're living for ourselves, we're living in direct and open rebellion to God's purpose and design for our lives. So when we are pursuing our own pleasure, we're contradicting the very reason for why we have been created. And when we pursue our own selfish pleasure and our own agenda, what happens to us is in our attempts to find freedom, to live for ourselves and be autonomous, what's actually happening is we become enslaved. We're enslaved to sin. Which is why you see here God's grace is described. The second way here is through redemption. So God's grace is shown here in creation and in redemption. Verses 1 through 4 have the language of the exodus. That's what is being described here. Salvation as a second exodus. And so this language of I have redeemed you. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. For I am your God, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom. So all this language, verses 1 through 4, is rooted in the Exodus, where God miraculously saved his people from slavery in Egypt. And so Israel was saved by the power of God. The enemy was defeated, and so Israel was free from their oppression and bondage when they passed through the Red Sea safely, and the enemy was destroyed in the waters. And so what you're seeing here is very important. What you're seeing here with this language of the Exodus is that even though God's people had given up on him, God had never given up on his people. To redeem someone was to pay the ransom price, to pay the slave price, to set that person free from slavery. And so you, you have the words redeem and ransom both in this text because what this is doing 
it's pointing to a much greater reality. Remember, here in the 8th century context, they were about to go to slavery in Babylon. But there was something much bigger. They were spiritually enslaved to their sin. And God is promising that he will deliver them from the exile, that they will be gathered together. But this is pointing to what Christ has done on the cross, which is why you see in verse 5, Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west. I will gather you. And so in the middle of this judgment and of going to exile, he says, I'm going to gather you. I'm going to bring you close to me. And so God is promising that one day he's going to restore and bless and save and gather his people so that they can be close and enjoy him. Redemption here is an act of God's grace. We can't earn it. We don't deserve it. And so Israel's liberation from slavery and then restoration back to the promised land after the exile in Babylon was the pattern that was being set for the ultimate redemption that Jesus accomplished on the cross. With his own blood, he paid the redemption price. Understand, we have offended an infinitely holy God. And the penalty for our sinning against God is nothing other than death. Which is why, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Which is why God sent his son to come and die for us and pay the price to free us from our slavery. Which is why in verse 2, we just read, it says, When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. And so we will not be consumed by, by the flames of God's holy judgment. Why? Because the promised servant from Isaiah 42, this promised servant, the Messiah, he experienced that judgment for us on our behalf. Why? Why would God send Jesus? Why would he do that for us? Verse 4. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. God loves you because he loves you. He loves you because you're the object of his affection. Do you believe this today? I mean, I'm serious. Do you truly believe this? When you, when you look at your struggles and your temptations, when you look at your life and how all of us are broken and all of us are so desperate for God, when we look in the mirror and we see who we really are and maybe no one else knows what you're going through, but God knows what you're going through. Do you feel enslaved to a sin today? And are you wondering if God, you're wondering, God, do you actually love me? Well, I have a word for you from your God in heaven. And this word is the God speaking to you. And he is saying, you are precious in my eyes and honored. And I love you. God loves you. You're precious to him. God's grace is stronger. This grace that he pours out because of Christ's work on the cross where it's paid 
this incredible, glorious work of grace is stronger than your struggles. It's stronger than your faults. God's grace is stronger than your sinful desires. God's grace is stronger than your doubts. God's grace is stronger than your fears. You can overcome them, not in your own power, but the power of the Spirit who is in you because of Christ's work on the cross. You will not experience the flames of God's judgment. You will not be burned because Jesus was consumed already and resurrected and defeated it. And so we can live lives of victory through the power of his Spirit. You can because you are precious and honored and But this, this grace is received only by faith. You must respond to this act of grace with complete trust in Jesus alone. And some of you in the room have never done that. You have never come to grips with the fact that you are a sinner. But you are. And you need God's grace. Will you today turn away from that sin, repent, acknowledge that you need God to save you, Repent, trust alone in Jesus, and receive this grace that we're talking about. You can today experience that. Experience forgiveness if you'll trust in Christ. But most of us in the room have already repented and trusted in Jesus. We are followers of Jesus. Do you realize that when that first time when your eyes are open, when you realize that you're a sinner, when you turn, when you repented and you trusted in Christ alone, that that act of salvation, when at that point you were forgiven and dwelt by His Spirit, and that you were declared righteous in God's eyes, at that point, that conversion sets a pattern for the rest of your life. It sets a pattern of daily repentance and of daily reaffirming your trust in Jesus. You have to go back to the cross every single day and realize your need for God's grace and not be self-sufficient and think that you can continue to grow on your own. And so God's grace saves you, but then God's grace is what sanctifies you, what helps you to grow. And it's all about continuing to trust every day at Jesus, to see the glory of God in the face of Christ. We need daily correction, daily daily feeding our souls from God's word so that we can continue to grow. God is revealing his glory in creation and in redemption. This is the work of God. It's his handiwork. It shows his character, which incidentally, by the way, in the room, teenagers, all right, when your parents talk, and also at NYU Abu Dhabi students, those of you that are students, when you produce bad work, when you're lazy and you cut corners, and you don't spell correctly or show all your work in math, when, when you don't do your best in school, what you're doing is, is you're showing your character. Because the work that you produce is a reflection of your character. It is. And those of us that are adults in the adult world, it's the same thing. How you work is a reflection of who you are. Lazy, cutting corners, complaining at work, that's your character. Good work ethic shows what you're made of on the inside. 
So you, you do your best. You should always work hard to please God because how you work is showing who you are. Same thing, because we're made in God's image. What God does, his work of creation and redemption shows his character. That's what God is like. What does God do? He creates. What does that show? That he's wise and powerful and intelligent and gracious. And what does God do? He redeems. Why? Because he's merciful and he's gracious and he loves us. Work shows character. So the work of God in creation and redemption shows who he is and what he's like. It reveals his glory. So God loves you today. When we find our hope in him, when God's redeemed are growing in their faith and are really hoping in God, when we're finding our comfort in God, our purpose in God, his glory is revealed. Our glory is displayed through the transformed lives of his people. And so God loves you. He's zealous for you. But if I'm honest, he is more zealous for something else. There is something greater that God is zealous for, that he loves even more than you. You know what that is? His glory. God is more zealous for his glory. And when he loves us, he's doing it to display his glorious perfections. And so as we go back to this truth, truth one is God pours out his grace. Truth two, so that his people be living testimonies of his glory. And so he's sharing his grace. He's blessing us for a purpose, so that we'll be living testimonies of his glory. You see it in verses 6 and 7. Again, Isaiah 43. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Man, our God is amazing. God has this plan where he takes self-absorbed, self-righteous, self-aggrandizing, self-pleasing people like you and me, and then he transforms us to God-centered, God-glorifying, God-serving, God-loving, white-hot worshipers. I mean, do you see what a miracle this is? Only God can do that. Only he is able to take our selfish rebel hearts and change us so that we want to joyfully submit to the king and live for his glory and not our own. And he's doing that for the sake of his name. He's doing it because we've been created, as we just read, for his glory. We don't exist to pursue our own glory. When we want our own glory, we're robbing God of his rightful glory. And the word for that is idolatry. And so we are designed, created to live for the glory of God. So true freedom is found in joyfully serving the king and delighting in his glory. And you see this more in the next few verses, verses 8 through 13. Let's read those. Bring out the people who are blind yet have eyes, who are deaf yet have ears. All the nations gather together, all the peoples assemble. Who among them can declare this and show us the former things? 
Let them bring their witnesses to prove them right. And let them hear and say, it is true. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you. And you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. And henceforth I am he. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can turn it back? God is crying out, I alone am God, I alone am glorious. There is no other God in heaven except for me. And the scene here is a courtroom, this cosmic courtroom. And he's assembled all the nations, all the people are there. And God is crying out, look at me, behold me, enjoy me, see that I alone am glorious. And he's judging all the nations. To show that he alone is God. And he calls his people to be his witnesses. You see it in verse 10. He says, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord. My servant whom I have chosen. So he's saying, you are my witnesses in this courtroom before all nations. And so God calls you and me to be living testimonies where there is proof that there is a God in heaven, that he's mighty to save. And so what is the evidence that there is a God who satisfies? What is the proof? The transformed lives of his people. God's glory is revealed when we live lives, for example, when we forgive those who hurt us and we put aside the bitterness sometimes it's very hard to do. God's glory is revealed when, when we treasure Jesus more than our sinful desires and then we experience victory over that sin. His glory is revealed and there's evidence that there is God in heaven. When we cling to God and we don't lose hope, even in the face of a devastating doctor's report, God's glory is revealed. He proves that he does satisfy. When we are honest and, and we're humble and we, we beg God to heal the brokenness that's deep inside. When we love and when we respect those difficult people, maybe you say the impossible people to love. And when we love even them, God's glory is being revealed. When we're deeply saddened but not undone, when a loved one dies. We're proving that there is a God who alone can save us and satisfy us. Treasuring and trusting Jesus is what leads to transformed character. No treasuring Jesus, no daily trusting him, no transformed character. The changed lives of God's people authenticate our claims that God alone is glorious. Now, hey, we're all expats in the room. We all have those those pinkish-orange stickers in your passport called a visa, right? And are those easy to get? No, it's kind of a hassle, isn't it? 
because you have to have this document and that document and this document, and you have to go to one office or another office, and you have to get what are all these documents? Stamps, right? It's such a joy. I mean, we just, we love having to go around town and go and get stamps. But why do we do that? Why do we have to go to get all these documents stamped to get a visa? Because that is the authentication process. To authenticate a document, it's a tedious process, but it's proving that it's genuine or valid. It's saying this is an original valid document, like a birth certificate or marriage certificate or whatever it might be. And so whenever it's stamped by the governing authority, it's proving that it's genuine. This is a valid, true copy or original. And then it'll stand in a legal context. And so we understand this process of attestation or of authentication. And so our transformed character is the stamp. Your transformed character before God is the stamp that authenticates, that proves that your faith in God is real, that it's genuine. That's the stamp. And people in our world will believe our message that our God is greater. They'll believe us when our lives are different, when our lives are the same. It's an unstamped document. It doesn't count. And I can tell you this firsthand. I experienced this when I was in Addis Ababa, bringing our boys home. It was crazy because I needed to get a document stamped for the U.S. Embassy for Ministry of Women's Affairs from Ethiopia. And, and they misspelled Nathaniel's name. And so the U.S. Embassy said, nope, this document won't do. Go back to Ministry of Women's Affairs and get a correct document that has your son's name spelled correctly. But we're flying out like in five hours. And so I'm driving across town, and there's no electricity because it's Africa. And, and then the, the lady wasn't there. She shows up like an hour late. And all this just so that I could have a stamped document proving that they are my children by this government agency. And we barely made it, but we came home and got it. And so, what does it look like in your life? This is your life demonstrated. You see, God is pouring out his grace on us so that we'll be living testimonies of his glory. So God has not blessed this church with this new hall so we can be comfortable. No, I know what some of you are thinking. Yeah, but pastor, but the AC is good in here. And there's no cats running around when you're preaching. And there's no shisha odor. And I don't have to stand in the back. I can actually find a seat now. And you're thinking, no, this is just so much better. And this new hall, it's cleaner. And, and the AC is good. And I'm just so happy because this is such a more comfortable new hall for us. God has blessed us so that we can be comfortable. Wrong. That's not true. God does never, he never, he doesn't bless us for comfort. He provides comfort. Yes, not denying that. But his blessings are for always a bigger purpose. He blesses us and is blessing this church 
so that we can be better witnesses of his glorious grace. That's what God is after. This hall is a means. This new hall is not an end. Let's, let's not get too excited. This hall is more work because you need to set up a stage and it's heavy. And so we need more guys to help with that. So I'm, I'm serious. If you want to help on setup, then come talk to me because we do need more help. And if God blesses and we have more people, then we need, we're bringing to have more children, which seems to be the, the trend with our church, which is a good thing. So we're going to need more people to invest and to teach them and help them to cross this, you know, safely cross the street. We need more guys to help with that. We, so this is an act of stewardship more than anything to have this new hall. It's a responsibility. And God has blessed us with this hall so that we can be more effective in accomplishing the mission of glorifying God by making and developing disciples. A lot of people approach their faith as nothing more than just a religion. Taking the religious boxes or just trying to get more religion in a nicer hall is just more comfortable religion. But that's not the goal, we don't have time to get into it at length, but if you go towards the end of Isaiah 43, I read one verse, verse 24. God says, you have not bought me sweet cane with money or satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices, but you have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. He's saying, yeah, you, you, bring, you, you bring your sacrifices, doing the religious thing. But I'm weary. I'm weary because your life isn't transformed. And so religious activity that's empty of true love for Jesus is just empty. And it doesn't please God. And so even coming here on Friday mornings, if you're coming here to check a religious box, it's not impressing God. It's not pleasing him. What he wants is your heart. That's what he wants most. He wants your affections. He doesn't want religious activity. He wants our hearts. May we never forget that as a church. May our activity for God be fueled by our devotion, our love for him. May we never trust in having a better meeting venue. May we not trust in our ministries or programs or our abilities or music or whatever. It's not about that. We want to see lives transformed for the glory of Jesus. May we never lose our focus. Our focus, our hope, our trust is to know Jesus and to make him known. Not about checking religious boxes. And so as we embark on this new chapter for our church's history with the new hall, which it is more comfortable, I don't even deny that. But let's not forget why we're here to be living testimonies of God's gloriousness. And this morning, my heart is just so full, full of gratitude toward God for blessing this church, full of joy, because I get to be part of this faith family, full of excitement for the future. I am just so excited. As, as great as our, our last few years have been, I believe that the future is even brighter for ECC off Island. I want to see more churches planted, not just one in Musafa. We just, I mean, I think about our church and our future, and I'm just giddy with excitement. 
Are you, are you part of this? Not a spectator, not just come in and sit, but are you really engaged with people and being involved and really growing? This new hall is just a reminder that God will not forsake us, that he has plans for us, that he will provide for us and take care of us. We have a truly wondrous God. And so I pray that we will be living testimonies of his goodness. Let me pray. Father, we thank you. We are in awe of how good you are to us. We praise you and we thank you for being with us. We thank you for this church. We thank you for giving us even this new meeting hall. But Father, we want most is to be living testimonies of your glorious grace so that we can accomplish this glorious mission that your son gave to us. We want to see more people come to faith. We want to see more transformed lives so that your glory is further revealed. Help us as a church to not lose our focus. We praise you for who you are and what you have done and what you are doing. And we lay our lives and this church at your feet because we trust you. We pray in the name of our King Jesus. Amen.